Uh, this morning, I just have a quick, uh, uh, just a quick sermon, which may, you may laugh at. I don't know. Um, you're like, really? Uh, but we'll see what happens. Um, actually, though, last week, uh, I was asked right after the Sunday morning service if this morning I was going to be continuing in my series on First and Second Kings, which would have put me in First uh, Kings 18 at the end, where Elijah's on the mountaintops, right? <laughs> He's having his contest with uh, the prophets of Baal on the slopes of Mount Carmel, which would have been a mountaintop experience, right? And we're having our own mountaintop experience. That would have been so cool, but we're not going to do that. Uh, I wanted to spend a little bit more time uh, on that particular passage, so thank you, Matt Kersey, for pointing that out. Um, but I did, because of Matt's comment, and then because of another sermon I was reading, I was inspired to do sort of a, a survey, if you will, of biblical, uh, a biblical pattern, actually, that I think is going to be really fitting. Uh, the biblical pattern of God revealing himself on mountaintops. And in fact, I think this is one you can you are likely already thinking about a ton of different uh, examples of that, passages which include that. But one of the things I've loved about studying the Bible is actually finding biblical patterns, uh, things that happen that are echoing of something else. Uh, you can, if you if you have ears to hear and eyes to see, so to speak, to reference Jesus, you can you can see this all over scriptures that most of the Bible is echoing itself in, in a lot of different ways. And one of the ways that this clearly happens, I think, is through uh, these sort of mountaintop experiences. And so this morning, I kind of want to just go through three of those and just how we can see sort of the gospel being presented through different mountains and through different experiences that God's people have on mountaintops. So that's what we're going to do this morning really quickly, as I think we have here this sort of mountainous gospel of God, if you will. So the first one I'm going to take you to is probably the first one you thought of, because it might have been the first one you learned when you were all a, a wee little lad or lass back in Sunday school, which was uh, Mount Sinai. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 19. This is where that passage is found. If not, I'll just try and read really loudly. But Exodus 19 is where we first encounter Mount Sinai. And here, uh, after Israel's very dramatic exodus out of Egyptian bondage and slavery, complete with really cataclysmic plagues and, and a, a pursuing chariot army and the dividing of the Red Sea and all that kind of stuff, they find themselves now encamped in the barren hill country of the Sinai Peninsula. And so or Exodus chapter 19 verse 1 says... In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone, forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. For they were departed from Rephidim and were come to the desert of Sinai and had pitched in the wilderness. And there Israel camped before the mount. Now they're here. This is Mount Sinai, if you will. And little did they know, I don't think anyone expected when they exited Egypt that they would eventually be encamped in the wilderness for upwards of two years. <laughs> In fact, they're at this spot for roughly two years, encamped on the slopes of Mount Sinai, in sort of this wasteland, this wilderness, as the text says. And it's here, though, where, of course, Moses is called up by God. He actually goes up into the mount a couple different times before he actually is there to, for an extended time. In verses 3 and verse 20 of chapter 19, you can see that. 
But then eventually, of course, we know he's called up into the mount by God to sort of uh, have him uh, transcribe all of his covenant details that God wants to impart to his people. And that's really what the rest of Exodus is. If you uh, read from about Exodus 19 through almost the end of the book, it's almost a, just a record, a really long retelling of all of God's uh, very intricate and detailed and intimate covenant uh, requirements of his people. Chief of which I'm sure you know are the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20 verses 13 through roughly 17 is where we get those, those really famous uh, rules that we're supposed to follow, right, as God's people. These codes, these laws were to be the expression that God's people lived out to sort of demonstrate to all of the world exactly what it means when people follow the living God. That's what they were called to do. That's really the meaning of this covenant, right? That's, it, it, you realize that they weren't supposed to live this way in order to be God's people. They were called to live this way because they were God's people. They were called to live this way to demonstrate to the world just what type of God they had. That's why all these things are so detailed and so minute. And it and might seem just a, a little bit so foreign to us to have some, something so uh, detailed like that. But the reason why is because God was demonstrating how holy he really was. But of course, we can, we can go on and on about all the meanings of that. And in fact, a wonderful study would be to see Christ in all of those different details that Jehovah uh, relays to Moses. But we know the rest of the story. Because Mount Sinai is not just memorable for its uh, demonstration of God's holiness and, 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 and sort of the articulation of that. But it's also uh, a lot more memorable for one particular moment. <laughs> Turn to Exodus chapter 32. Because perhaps more memorable than the Ten Commandments, maybe, I don't know. Maybe equal, I don't, I'm not sure, <laughs> is the moment in Exodus chapter 32 where God's people get a little bit impatient. They get a little bit grumpy. And hopefully that won't describe you in a few minutes. You won't get impatient with me. <laughs> uh, you won't go calling for a golden calf. I don't know. Uh, but here, this is, that, this is where that happens. Moses has been called into the mountaintop and he's been gone for what seems like forever. <laughs> And God's people get impatient. They get restless. Notice Exodus 32 verse 1. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for, as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we want not what has become of him. We have no idea what's happened to this guy Moses. He's, he's gone. Who knows where he is? He's in the wastelands of Sinai now, so he, as far as we know, he's good as dad. So let's just make gods and let's worship the Lord here in this place. <laughs> because of their impatience and because of their poking and their prodding of Moses' brother Aaron, he, he acquiesces to that request. And notice verse 2 of chapter 32. And Aaron said unto them, break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, 
which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow, and he offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. How interesting (laughs) that in the very shadow of the very mountain where God is proclaiming that he is the only God, his people are making a graven image. (laughs) How, just think about how sore it takes for man to break the very first commandment. If you, I'll just read it really quick. In Exodus 20, listen to, just stay in Exodus 32 and listen to how parallel these verses are. When God is laying down the very first commandment that is, ought to be indicative of who his people is. Listen to what he says. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them nor serve them. For I the Lord thy God am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. (laughs) Very quickly. It does not take long for God's people to suddenly evidence the fact that they are sinners. To evidence the fact that they are restless, impatient people who are so uh, incapable of waiting on God. And incapable of, of living up to his standard of perfection. And in fact, I think that that's what this mountain is. Sinai is the mountain of perfection, if you will. It's the mountain where God demonstrates and he clearly expresses just exactly what it means and what it looks like for someone to live a holy life. (laughs) And how true and how fitting that even as that's being demonstrated and, and declared by God himself, the one who is holiness himself, that the very people that he has called into covenant with him are completely unable to live up to that standard. They can't live holy lives. They can't live righteously. And in fact, not just is this a mountain of perfection that is, uh, that is sort of being demonstrated. It's a mountain of perfection that we can never live up to. We can never uh, meet this standard. We learn here at Sinai just how imperfect we are. Just how incapable we are of ever living up to God's standard. I think we learn here, along with Israel... <laughs> Just how desperate we are for someone to help us. How, how true it is that we need someone that, to help us. Think about the slopes of Sinai. God's covenant is being broken. <laughs> Which is a good segue into the second mountain I want to bring you to. We'll go to Luke chapter 23. So obviously we're jumping thousands of years later in history. But I want you to see the parallels here. As here's another mountain. Another mountain where God reveals himself. I may not be able to open my Bible. We'll see. This wind is picking up. (laughs) Um, Luke chapter 23, of course, is uh, the gospel account by the doctor, Luke, of of Jesus' crucifixion. And, of course, we have this wonderful uh, instance where uh, they are bringing Jesus out to be crucified. And so look at verse... um, uh, let me see here. Verse number, 23, uh, verse number 33, excuse me, of Luke 23. And it says, And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him, 
and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. This, of course, is the second mountain we have to survey, which, of course, is Mount Calvary. Calvary, of course, is the name of the mount where Jesus was crucified. It's actually a Latin word meaning cranium or skull. Because, actually, if you read some of the other accounts, the word Calvary doesn't appear. Actually, you'll see the word Golgotha in Matthew and in Mark and in John, which... Uh, Calvary is the Latin word for skull and Golgotha is the Aramaic word meaning the same thing which was indicative of this place, this mountain which had the resemblance of a skull. And it's here on this place just outside of Jerusalem where I think God reveals his truest heart. Because here in this place that is reserved for execution, God reveals just the type of God he is. He reveals the type of love that is so indicative of this God who is a God who is holy and loving. Because here Jesus hangs on the cross and reveals God's love for the world. And I think that that's a very important word, reveals. There's sometimes, and if, I, if I'm not thinking clearly, I can sometimes see the cross as almost Jesus paying off God. And that, that this love that he has for the world, that John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that it's almost as if the son procured God's love. That he bought it, that he somehow uh, made something come about that didn't exist before. And in fact, that that's not true at all. That's not, that's not what's happening at the cross at all. Yes, Jesus is, is paying for our sins and all those sorts of things. But here, this is the truest demonstration of the love of God that he has for his creation. So much so that he would demonstrate his love for sinners in the midst of their sins. This is where we get that wonderful verse in Romans 5. That God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Commendeth. A word which means demonstrated or proves. He proves his love on the cross. He doesn't purchase it. He reveals how deep his love is for people who keep screwing up. For people who keep messing up. For people who can't get out of their own way. He proves it on a cross as he takes nails into his hands and feet and bleeds out for the people who put him there. He's... Proving his love to the world. If you've ever doubted, does God really love me? Look at John chapter 19. Look at Luke chapter 23. Look at Matthew 26 and 27. Look at the crucifixion accounts. That's Jesus' definitive, I love you to the world. And how sad it is that people will live their lives rejecting that. It's an extension of one-way love, and everyone who rejects this is rejecting unilateral love from the Heavenly Father, from the one who has spoken them into existence, the Holy One of God. They have rejected that. Here, this mountain is the proof of God's love. It's our mountain of pardon, if you will. Sinai, the mountain of perfection. Calvary, the mountain of pardon. Where, uh, that, like that old song says, all of our sins rolled away. It's here, at this place, where love is once for all demonstrated. This love of the Father 
that fulfills righteousness, upholds its law, and is able to extend free salvation to people who can't get out of their own way, who keep on failing, who keep uh, uh, failing to live up to that standard of perfection. God inserts himself into that mess. See, this is the wonder of the gospel. That that very standard of perfection that was so articulated back in Exodus 19 is the very standard of perfection that Christ inserts himself and says, I will fulfill that for them on their behalf. That's what he does as our ransom, as our pardon, as our savior. He lives perfectly for those who cannot help but live imperfectly. This is the gospel of Mount Calvary, which tells us that this place, this this location outside of Jerusalem, which stood for execution, which stood for punishment, now stands as our mountain of eternal life. You see how it transforms that place of a skull into a place of life. Golgotha is our place of grace. Calvary is our place of everlasting life in eternal pardon. Precisely because of the one who stood there for us. Jesus, the son of God. He meets the standard of perfection at Sinai. He secures our pardon at Calvary. And then lastly, the last mountain I want to bring you to is Uh, One that you might find in Matthew chapter 28. Though it may not be uh, labeled there. But Matthew 28 is of course famous because of the last couple verses. 18 through 20 are commonly referred to as the Great Commission. And here Jesus has resurrected. And he is with his apostles. And he brings them up to the Mount of Olives. This is the last mountain we have to survey. Mount The Mount of Olives or Mount Olivet was the place a few uh, days from this very, uh, a few days prior from this very passage, Jesus took them and gave them the Olivet Discourse, which you uh, might know, Matthew 24 or Mark 13. But here he gives them, I would say, kind of one final sermon. To me, uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is really one final sermon. I kind of like to read them in conjunction with Acts chapter 1. Because all of that moment is, is, is seemingly one moment where Jesus is giving one last word to his apostles before he ascends into heaven. If you've ever been around someone who is giving their last words, maybe perhaps someone on their deathbed or something like that. Those are sometimes viewed as the, the very most important words. <laughs> and here he's giving them to his apostles who were with him for all those years. And what does he say to them? Verse 18, and Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you all the way, even unto the end of the world. I've always loved this moment. Especially if you, if you pair it with Acts chapter 1. Go, go to Acts chapter 1 and just let me read some of these verses really quick. Because I love, I love how you can just imagine the apostles' faces. So Acts chapter 1 is sort of the same moment where he's, being, he's bringing up his uh, apostles unto the Mount of Olives. And it says, verse 6, When therefore they were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons. 
which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they stood looking steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said of them, Ye men of Galilee, why are you standing and gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall also come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. <laughs> I always love that moment. Because Jesus has given them this sort of parting words, this final sermon, if you will. And then he ascends. And I just imagine the apostles' faces just looking like deer in the headlights. <laughs> just totally dumbfounded. I imagine their jaws just falling to the floor as their savior, their rabbi, the one who has been with them for all of these years, through all of this commotion, through all of these different trials. They have seen him crucified and now they've seen him resurrected and now they see him floating up into the sky. <laughs> their eyes are wide. Their mouths are open, but just nothing coming out of them. <laughs> And they are so dumbfounded, they are left so speechless, that God actually has to send angels. <laughs> Did you catch that? He has to actually have sent angels to stir them out of this, this haze, this dazed look on their faces. <laughs> They're just going to, I just kind of sometimes think they would have stood there for hours. <laughs> so, looking at each other, what do we do now? <laughs> what, what now? <laughs> and the, the angel, this is, go, <laughs> listen to what he just told you. <laughs> So much had been riding on Jesus. I've thought about this a lot. If you think about the apostles in a very human way. So much had been riding on Jesus up to this moment. Think about, think about all of the, the Sunday school lessons that all of the disciples or some of them, maybe a lot of them, uh, learned when they went to synagogue. <laughs> They heard about this Messiah who was going to come and overthrow Rome. He was going to come and he was going to lead this massive Israelite army. And they were going to bring Israel back up to the heights of glory and power and preeminence. And then he dies. The cross happens. All of their hopes and their dreams about who Jesus was were crushed. Because remember, they were thinking that this Messiah guy, he was going to be a prince. He's being crucified as a blasphemer. He's being crucified as a traitor. And he really does die. The cross crushes their hopes and dreams of what they thought that they were getting themselves into. And then the resurrection happens. Jesus ushers himself into the, that room that's locked. Remember John chapter 20? It's a locked room and Jesus enters. And it's amazing because he enters with a real body because Thomas touches it. He puts his hands in, his, in, his, in Jesus' hands inside and he touches the real flesh and buds, blood, skin and bone body of Jesus. And here, once again, as the cross reconfigured their hopes and the resurrection transformed them once again, the ascension is going to transform these apostles into a bunch of dudes who scattered at the sight of Jesus being arrested into a bunch of men who are fearlessly preaching the good news that Jesus is the Christ. 
You can only take what you see in the book of Acts, knowing that these were men who were utterly transformed by what they had just saw. And here, they did so because of this amazing promise. If Sinai is our mountain of perfection and Calvary is our mountain of pardon, I would say that the Mount of Olives is our mountain of promise. Because they did so with those amazing words. The last ones, to me, stick out. I will be with you. Always. There is never going to be a time when I am not near you. There's never going to be a moment when I am not with you. And he could say that. Because he knew that the Holy Spirit was going to come and be with them. You see, this mountain of promise still stands for us. This is the promise that still exists for us. That God is with us always. Period. No exceptions. No sort of clauses that may make it not true. No sort of cases where it is less true or more true. This is the promise of God that he gave to all of his disciples at the Mount of Olives. That wherever you go, I will be. I am with you always. Even unto the end of the world. Has it felt like the end of the world? Maybe. Maybe some of you are kind of just jaded with that whole idea. <laughs> you keep hearing people talking about the apocalypse is just around the corner and other people are saying it's whatever. You know what? Jesus is with us <laughs> unto the end of the world. And maybe that's tomorrow. <laughs> or maybe it's in my grandkids' lifetime. But this promise is true right now at 1048 on August 15th, 2021. It'll be true on December 31st, 2031. It'll be true on 2099 if we ever get there. Hopefully not. It's true always. You know, I love those words in Acts. Just like, they're, remember, they're human. They had already asked Jesus, if you go, I love this, in Mark chapter 13, I think that's the all of that discourse. I know Matthew 24 is. But if you read all of that, Jesus is giving them prophecy, and he's telling them about the end of the world and all that kind of stuff. And remember, they ask him, can you give us some signs of when this is going to be? And he tells them basically another riddle that confuses them, and they're like, okay. And here, they ask him again. The, the last thing that they want to know before he leaves, when... When are all those things going to come true? What is his answer? It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and in the uttermost part of the earth. That's not for you to concern yourself with. I want to know when the apocalypse is going to happen. Is it going to be when those murder hornets finally come? Is it going to be when the next variant comes? Is it going to be when so-and-so gets elected? When's, when is it going to happen? Is this the sign of the times? Jesus says, maybe, but probably not. That's not your job. That's not what I've called you out for. I've called you out to be my witnesses wherever you are, whenever you are. Right here, right now. This is where I've put you. 
Don't concern yourself about all of those things that are coming in the future. Those end time events. Guess who has all of the end times ordered in the palm of his hands? God. The holy God of Israel. The king of all kings. The one who is above all things. He is the one who has already orchestrated all of those events for us. And he says to us now, be my witnesses. We don't need to fret as the end approaches. Again, what does Jesus say? I am with you always unto the end of the world. That promise is with us right now. I would say we need each of these mountains. Each of these mountaintop revelations that God gives us. Where we can clearly see what is true. What is good and what is right. That we cannot ever meet up God's standard. But God praise his name. He has lived up to that standard. And he has promised to live with us forever. That's the gospel of the mountains if you will. And it's true for us. Because we know. You know that verse that always gets taken out of context. Romans 8.28. He has worked, he's going to work all things together for good according to his purpose. It's true. It's, it's true. All things are going to work out for God's glory and our good. For those who are the faithful, the called of God according to his purposes. And he promises that regardless of how tenuous, regardless of how discouraging certain moments can be. What is his promise? I'm with you. Unto the end of the age, as the world is fracturing. I am with you. That to me is a promise that speaks to me so dearly. And I pray it does to you. This gospel of the mountains. Let us bow our heads and close our eyes.